Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves Podcast. As many of you likely know, but maybe some of you don't, I got a dog last April and this dog's name is Carl and he's been absolutely incredible and he's been such an incredible teacher in so, so many ways and he's this splendid little soul and sometimes when I ask him to do something, which, you know, is more like a command, yeah, he looks at me and I think he, you know, I was playing fetch with him the other day and he gave me this look like, do you know how many times I've done this? Do you know how many lifetimes I've had? And here you are throwing a ball for me. Like, <laughs> I think he just kind of looks at me like he knows so much more. Sometimes I think that about animals that we don't give them credit for the level of consciousness they actually might have. <laughs> Maybe they got it all figured out. What we hear is barking is actually a really complex language. <laughs> it's kind of funny to think about. But you know, in all this conversation about relationship, I've observed uh, within myself and within other people their relationship with their animal and how I often see what we get frustrated about and even how we see the window into our animal's thinking really being correlated to a lot of our own triggers and pain that we've had. And, you know, and it's been really interesting to explore myself from that perspective. So I, since really the dawn of having Carl, I've had a dog trainer, which really is a Mark trainer to help Mark train Carl. I'm always so fascinated by our conversations because there's so much overlap in the experience of us with dog as there is with human with human. And I thought, what better thing to have than a conversation about our relationship with our pets, our relationship with dogs. So you're in for a real special treat because I brought on the amazing Annika McDade, who is an incredible trainer, incredible teacher, and she has tons of stuff available online for you. She's just so great at explaining things and making it make sense and blew my mind, continues to blow my mind with the things I learned from her and some things I learned in recording this episode. So I'm so excited for you. If you are a dog person, incredible. You're in for something. If you are a regular person who isn't into dogs, no problem. You're going to learn something. And if you are a cat person, I'm sure you could still learn some. I wanted to take a quick break in this episode to talk to you about the greatest struggle that people have in dating. And that is asking the right questions. And not just the right questions, but asking hard questions. Questions that determine if someone wants what you want, what you are, what your relationship status is, that, that deepen vulnerability and intimacy. And ultimately asking the right questions allows you to get to know someone on a deeper level, gets to know their values, get to know whether they're a good fit for you. Now, I recognize that when I get feedback on asking questions, people say, that's too hard to ask, or it's too soon to ask that, or whatever the excuse or thought or feeling or fear might be. And so I thought, shit, let me ask the hard questions. And that's why I created Create the Love Cards. Create the Love Cards is created with such intention for you to deepen your conversations on dating. And because of that, the deck, when you open it up, it fits two smartphones. So you can put your phone inside the box as you take the cards out so you can both be present. 
Now, if someone doesn't want to play, I'm like, swipe left. That's a red flag. Like, who doesn't want to play a game? Second, I've got it in four sections. So we've got foreplay, diving deeper, too much information, because would it be a deck from me if it didn't have TMI, and building chemistry. So there's four sections for you to explore the landscapes of one another and see if you're a good fit. If you want to have deeper conversations, if you want to take this deck of cards on your dates or on your date night, or you think this would be a good gift for a couple, then go to createthelove.com slash cards. I put them at a really accessible price of 30 bucks, and I can't wait for you to check them out. They've received rave reviews. People are loving them. I have actually one friend who took them out on its second date with someone that she was hitting it off with. And after she got the answers to the questions that the deck provided, she realized that this person was not a good fit and swiped left and now is in a relationship with someone she loves. So that's what dating is about, is it's about filtering. And also my intention is to support you along that journey to not just finding the person that you want, but if you're with them, asking the questions that help create and deepen intimacy. So go to createthelove.com slash cards and grab a set now. Without further ado, here's Annika McDade. My friend, my dog trainer, Annika McDade, thank you for being here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk about this connection stuff because it's so interrelated. Well, yeah, we laugh a lot when we're doing our training stuff because we're like, oh, I'm like, this is how it works with people. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I've, I've really learned so much from you. And there's been a lot of growth in Carl and I's relationship. For those people listening here, like, who's Carl? Um, I'm not in another relationship with a guy. <laughs> I have a dog named Carl. And Carl, when I first got him, I remember feeling like this sense of like grief because I was losing some freedom. You know, there was this little, this little species who's now dependent on me. And in a way I like could feel a bit of resentment of that dependence and having to process that, like, here's this gift of the most bright eyed light. And I'm like, feel like my journey of Peter Pan life is, is coming to somewhat of a close where I have to think about other things, other people, other animals. And you've been such a gift in reminding me of, of just always assuming such beautiful intent from him. I love that. It's really easy to assume otherwise. So it's there. I think the beauty about them is their simplicity and we drive right past that because we have an agenda with them. So I love that you've come to that awareness. Well, tell us more about that. So we drive by this assumption of good intent. You know, I think I gave you an example. I asked you one day, like, hey, Carl's grabbing Kai's shoe, not mine, <laughs> and bringing it to his bed and chewing on it sometimes, but that's rare. And it, I've heard that this is dominance. And what is your, because that's right. We have all these, like, everyone's a dog trainer, first off. Thank you. Let me point this out. You're not, if you're not a dog trainer. So I'm curious, give a walkthrough of what the, because that, what you said to me, I was like, oh yeah. So tell me more. Okay. I love it. I loved your question. First, I mean, you ask good questions. A lot of people, I think we project our ideas of what's happening onto the dog. And, and then when we adopt that story of what's happening, we're coming further and further from the simplicity of the truth of what 
your dog is doing. So for Carl, in that beautiful question, you're like, is he trying to be dominant and like, you know, own something that's not his or whatever the the story that's been created or heard or misinterpreted by somebody else is. And it's like quite simple. No, shoes smell a lot like their owners and dogs that are missing their owner will often try to find things that smell like their owner and bring it to their safe place. So for Carl to go mm. collect a Kai shoe. Damn, to his not bed, my shoe. That's bullshit. I know. I'm so sorry. He hers <laughs> that day. But no, it's such a tender behavior of like, I want to be near that smell. And so I'm going to bring that smell to me. And and like, how beautiful of an expression is that? And how easy is it for us to, you know, misconstrue what that is by painting other pictures? When I remember when we were speaking about it, I was saying to you that one of the skills of relational masters, human relationships, is the assumption of good intent, is the assumption that everything is actually coming from a place of love, which doesn't mean there's not a lack of tolerance for certain behaviors, of course. But to assume good intent puts us in a different frame. Like when you say that, then I look at Carl and I'm like, oh, like <laughs> might have eaten my lace, which he's done. But it's also coming from this place of actually a desire to be close and a desire of love and actually a, a need for belonging and missing someone. And connection. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what is, when I think about the assumption of complexity in a dog rather than simplicity. What is sort of the simple operating software of a dog then for people listening? Like, where do we start when we look at our little canine furry friends? What do we just, because we're like, are they doing math in there? What are they doing? <laughs> I think that um, just understanding the way they learn is a great place to start. So dogs learn by association and by consequence, very similar to people. So the difference is that they are very self-serving in a way that doesn't really resonate with us at times. So for example, if jumping on the counter and stealing something like the steak you left accidentally for two seconds works in your dog's best interest, they're not trying to run the household. They're not trying to, you know, display their dominance. They're like, oh shit, cool. Yum. Thank you. Steak. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm going to take it. And that's just a beautiful self-serving moment of that smells good. I'm going to have it. And then that's the best part of them is they're not thinking five minutes ahead, 15 minutes ahead. They're so in the moment. This feels good. This is going to have a good outcome for me immediately. So I'm going to do it. And that's literally, for the most part, as far as it goes for them. Like, that's the beauty of it. They're not thinking, they're not anywhere but here right now thinking about, is this a good thing for me to do or a bad thing for me to do? And is it going to feel good or is it not going to feel good? So how do you get from, because of course I, I understand that, that like Carl eats chows down on goose poo, deer poo. And when I call him over, he has a couple extra bites and then comes to me, which is exactly how like a toddler would work if they were <laughs> eating chocolate or something. Although this is not chocolate. Let's be very clear. When I Googled why dogs do that, it was saying that to get local microbes, like to get the microbiome of the animals that are in the new region that they're in. And he travels a lot. So he ends up chowing down a lot of deer poo. But how do you get from the like eating the steak off the counter, those types of things to the recognition? How do you get to the training place to where they're understanding that eating the steak is not going to lead to good? And what are appropriate consequences for dogs that don't require uh, pain, so to speak. Totally. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, first is just understanding their instinct, their instinctual animals and the things that they do are based on instinct, um, and not from an emotional place often. So 
you know, just giving some leeway and compassion and understanding, okay, fair enough. Shit, I shouldn't have left that steak out. Okay, let's move on from this. Um, and, you, you know, same with the goose poo and all that stuff. Like if it feels good, tastes good and has a good consequence. And no wonder he takes a couple last bites. He's like, I'm going to get in so much trouble when I get back there. I might as well just gobble this last little bit up and then come back to you. A lot of that taking away the instinct and, and giving them or requesting that they choose you as a better option, you know, just listen to you, even if their instinct says not to, that seriously comes with time and commitment to training and your relationship being strong enough that let the, they let their own desires or instincts, you know, you know, pass and that they, they choose to commit to what you're asking for, even when it's not in their best interest. That, that really takes a long time. Mm, it would. That'd be the weighing of like, I'm not going to eat this chocolate because I trust my leader totally. knows I shouldn't eat this because something better, the trust in the relationship is going to be maintained. Something better is coming along. I lose my freedom, whatever it might be. Yeah. So there's always going to be a consequence for them. And, and they're really good at weighing out their options. Like, is it worth it for me to listen here? Or, you know, is the punishment going to be bad enough that I probably should listen when I don't want to. And in terms of answering your question around punishment, I, I think there's a general misconception where society has not unfortunately caught up with the science um, at this point. And we don't ever have to hurt or scare or really punish a dog in a way that's, you know, fear mongering. Um, I think human beings like control and they certainly like control over their animals because for some reason it reflects, you know, it, I don't know, you're the person that knows the people stuff more than me, but I think that our need for control with dogs is exactly where the challenge lies because we can't always win and we can't always get them to choose us, even if we've done everything right, because instincts will prevail. And so it, it pushes us to a place where I think people are very willing to use force or physical punishment to achieve their goals and relationship goals with their pets. And the truth is, there's absolutely no need and the long-term effects of that you know, can be detrimental to that relationship and that connection. Because you can have two types of relationships with your dog or somewhere in between. The first would be my dog listens to me because he wants to, because I've proven to him that it, that it is in his best interest and I'm fair and I'm consistent and I'm concise about what my expectations are. And that's more using positive reinforcement. And then you can fall on the other side where it's like my dog listens because he's scared shitless of what I'm going to do to him or what's going to happen to him if he doesn't. And, and as you can imagine, that's a pretty anxiety-inducing headspace for any animal or person to be in. Yeah, I think about my own experience of letting him off leash. And I called for you listening. I had to call Annika and be like, listen, I need an intervention personally. Because when he's off leash and he's chowing down on the poo or a deer is around and he still won't break chasing a deer for me, I get that. When you put things in perspective for me, I recognize that he's not trying to hurt my feelings. But isn't that interesting? What you said about humans is that we think their behavior is about our enoughness when it has nothing to do with your worth. Like he doesn't listen because we don't have a strong enough bond or we don't, I'm not powerful enough of an alpha, which that part might actually be true. Your pack order might be a little disrupted. But the when I called him over, and I was like, come, I remember, I was like, my nervous system fueled. Mark, <laughs> zero to 100, very rare. <laughs> Usually I can operate at 30 or 40 with some brain function, but he would not listen to me. And I was so mad at him. And I was calling him over and he was coming kind of close to me, but he wouldn't come to me. And I realized, why would he come to me? I'm like a big, scary person right now. And my energy is like 
stay the fuck like I love you, but you are off it right now. Totally. And I had to do some deep breaths. And it took about like four or five times that he wouldn't listen and I would get enraged that I would actually breathe. I saw how much personal work he was teaching me that if I'm like this with him, I'm likely going to be like that with a child who doesn't listen or that I am an unsafe place. And I got so present to my nervous system response and then like breathing and being like, I still love you, even though you didn't listen, come to me, you're going to go on leash because you broke the rules. And I'm going to give you a couple little tugs to say, dad's mad, but I love you and you're safe. And I thought about like how my, <laughs> it's interesting when it comes to dogs, like all my brain stuff about humans kind of goes out the window because I think it's different, but it's mm-hmm. not different at all. Yes. Thank you for saying that. It's really not. I mean, there's this little dance we have to do where it's very easy to project and personify and anthropomorphize our pets. And then, like I said, we create these stories about why they're doing things. And when we create these stories about why they're doing things that are totally subjective and not objective or based on truth at all, then we change our headspace around the way our dog's treating us or why their behavior is happening. We adopt this negative connotation. And then we neglect to recognize just actually fundamentally what's going on. And then your entire relationship shifts after that because you're constantly trying to get control and get your dog to listen. And man, you nailed it. There are mirrors. They have a scent gland that can sense your emotional state. And if you're pissed, they're like, nah, I mean, I don't want anything to do with being around your energy right now. And, and it's the same with our partners. Like they, <laughs> so they, we can't personify them, but at the same time, they can highlight parts of us that, that do require highlighting and some reflection and some awareness. And what a fucking gift that is to have a four-legged animal that doesn't speak our language mirror to us our shit and also challenge our inability to absolutely control something that we have nothing but a want to control innately. Well, I remember you said to me when we were, when we were traveling and Carl was, you know, maybe seven months old, six months old, we were having dinner and you taught me how to make him stay, which was, I normally thought like you tell the dog to stay and then you let them just stay there and you expect them to stay there. And you just keep putting them back in the same place till they realize they're not allowed to leave. And I remember you taught me to give them a reward every first, every 30 seconds, then you spread it out. And then eventually he sees like, when I sit here and chill on this couch in my dog cave, I get food. This is the best thing that's ever happened in my life. I never thought that way. Like it was such a mind fuck in my brain to like construct. Well, it makes so much sense. Like if I was sitting on the couch and people kept bringing me stuff, I'd be like, why would I ever get up? This is the greatest thing ever. And I remember when I was telling you, like he wouldn't stay. He normally does, but he wouldn't when we were eating dinner. I remember you're like, well, what were you having? I'm like, well, that's a weird question. And it's like <laughs> We were having steak and you're like, well, has he ever been around steak before? And I was like, no. And you're like, how do you expect a dog who's never been around steak to be like not so excited about a steak? And I was like, oh yeah. Like, honestly, that is the best part about my so-called job, which is just truly a passion project that I hilariously get paid for because I get to translate and live in the headspace of a dog. And then I communicate to people like you, like, no, man, you're so far off. Like, this is what's happening. And then, and then you literally look at your animal differently on a daily basis. Like, that's 
that is honestly the best gift is to shift people's perspectives and headspace and just be able to translate from a dog's perspective what the fuck is going on. Well, I was like, yeah, why would you not get up for steak? That makes so much sense. I wouldn't listen to me either if I'd never been around this beautiful piece of meat that's already cut up for you. Like, you don't have to pull the fur off. You don't have to do anything. Like, that's brilliant. That's what humans love about steak. Totally. I think our expectations of our dogs are so off, too. We, I mean, I think uh, we live in a culture where we're able to replace things that don't work, fix things that are broken, and have immediate gratification when we want it. So when we have an animal that's like, you know, not staying on its bed when I'm trying to eat a nice meal with my partner and it's, it's like, I'm read the manual and things aren't working and I tried to fix it and it's still not working. And then we, we hit the end of the leash and we're like, well, I just want a new one. And, and they push us to work through those challenges and try to understand why the hell they're not listening to us. And I, I just love that challenge that they give us. And, and it's a constant check-in with what's actually happening and what your idea of what's happening is. What you're saying about the ability or the invitation that the animal provides us, which is to work through things you haven't worked through, to like manage your response. Like if you can learn it with your human, that would be ideal, you know, but that's the invitation that conflict offers us, which is to become better, to learn how to understand the other person's perspective. And, you know, we, I think because we in some way are feel dominant over our animal. We don't take the time to be curious and understanding about the perspective. As you said, we personalize things when it's not personal at all. It has nothing to do with us. And being able to look inside their mind and say like, how, why would they see the situation the way they're seeing it? Why would they do the thing they're doing? What were the options that they had in that moment? Like the other day, Carl, We've been, we move around houses a lot, right? So he's always in a new environment. He flew on a plane for the first time a couple weeks ago in the cabin, which was like cool to see. And he did good. And the other day we got to a new house and he took, his poops are normally, if you're a dog owner, you know, we get to talk about poop. So it's happening. But you know, you like assess the consistency of their stool, you know, as a good owner. And I look for like shifts in his, like if he has blood in his stool when we travel, I know he's stressed, those types of things. And so um, I, he normally has real great poops, even in the moves, because I think he's getting used to it. He takes a poop in the house, Uh in the only spot on a white wool carpet (laughs) that doesn't belong to me. (laughs) And it's not solid like the others, like the one poop he has that's got like a little inconsistency. I'm like... First, my body is like, that smells so bad. Where is it? And I look at it and I'm like, it's in literally the worst possible place <laughs> you could ever have done it. At least it was on the corner, not in the middle. And then I was just like, you know, picking it up, just cursing the world. Put him in his kennel. But I remember because of the work, because I feel like not only do you train Carl with me, you train me with Carl. Mm-hmm. You know, you're like dog human psychologist. And you use dog stuff to train humans. I think that's really interesting. That really should be the title of your work. And I just sat there and I was like, well, he only pooped on this carpet because that was the best choice he had at the time. Good like for maybe, you. I, maybe I missed his, his like, hey, Mark, I need to go outside. But it's certainly not his fault. And he, he could have chosen a better place, but he's not like, hey, this wool. He's like, this is warm. That's cold concrete beside it. No problem. This is the most thing like grass. Exactly. 
Exactly. Good for you. You know what? I also think like those moments of like, are you kidding me? I mean, we all have those with our dogs. I have them um, definitely every single day. And like you said, like it makes you check your nervous system a bit when you feel feel it like flaring up. Uh, Again, what a gift and an invitation for us to check ourselves, do some breathing and recognize, okay, yeah, my back hurts from how hard you're pulling me. Great. That's on me. I haven't trained you to do otherwise. Why are you pulling? Because it smells good and there's geese up ahead. Okay, take a few deep breaths and maybe me taking a few deep breaths will impact him and allow him to take a few deep breaths because there is this sort of uh, cyclical relationship between our energy and their energy and it's always in motion. And so, yeah, those shit on the carpet moments are, again, another great opportunity for you to practice just to stop and breathe and and not blame and think it through and then move on because it really wasn't his fault. Well, I'm curious when you think about the... You told me the energy moves down the leash, something like that. Is that right? Well, it it moves from our bodies to their bodies. So yeah, you could say that. Yeah. So there's, so you're saying that, which makes total sense. The regulation of our own nervous system, when we become, let's say, anxious about a dog coming up ahead, or they sense that. And so we don't know how to regulate ourselves. It'll be hard for our dog to regulate themselves. A hundred percent. I see that all the time. And I mean, holding space for that's important too. As a coach, I I have to recognize that somebody is experiencing anxiety about the situation that's about to come up, which is really common for reactive dog owners. And it's one thing for them to be able to communicate to me like, okay, I'm feeling really nervous about this. I I can feel like my hands are starting to shake. Well, then let's abort mission because if you're feeling that way, your dog will in some way definitely feel that. They're sentient beings. I mean, they will feel that ripple effect. And if they already have a pre-existing concern with that type of situation, of course, they're going to, it's going to amplify it a little bit. So, I mean, I have that with clients all the time and I always tell them, okay, great. You've recognized that let's remove us from the situation because I can't reason with you to not feel anxious right now. That's, and if, if you're not regulated, then he's not going to be regulated. So you invite them to abort the mission a bit. And what you're doing is you're resensitizing them too. So as they get closer to a situation, they recognize where they're starting to get outside their window of tolerance, like outside of dysregulated, and then they come back. And so they keep sort of engaging, which I guess is true for like a dog that's experienced, let's say a trauma at a dog park or something Mm -hmm. like that, that you like slowly are teaching them that the world is actually safe. You just happen to experience an unsafe experience. Is that fair? Totally. It's like exposure therapy. But I mean, if the person's had PTSD or trauma from that experience with their dog, which is super common, again, for dogs that are reactive on leash in in cities where there's a lot of pressure to have a well-mannered dog, we can't progress the dog's training until the person's comfortable. And, And I mean, a lot of what I do is normalizing the dog's behavior explaining the why, where it comes from, because then we, then we understand them and we can connect to them better and, and feel more patient when they're pushing our boundaries and then give the person the tools on what they can do to impact their dog's behavior, such as, you know, catching when you're nervous and taking space when you're nervous, because we can't, we cannot push on and make the dog comfortable if you're not comfortable to begin with. So, so much confidence instilled in the owner is almost a starting point. And then we work on instilling that confidence in a dog. So how, like, what are some of the biggest mistakes that we make in our training, in in our relationship to our dogs? And I'm sure we can insert human in here, but in, in our relationship to our dogs, and then I'd love to hear what are the solutions to those common errors that you most see? Mm-hmm. I think I most see misunderstanding, for sure. And we've spoken a lot about that. I think 
having an interest in, and knowing that you should have an interest in why a dog is behaving a certain way, oh man, it leaves just, uh, it, it, that's how you connect with them. And that's how you can change the way you're communicating is like, look in front of you at what they're trying to communicate to you and why they're reacting to something and why they're doing something they do. If we're not curious about the why, then we can't hold space to create a solution. So that's the first thing is, you know, wondering why your dog is doing something. Um, the second is we're very um, savvy and excited to correct symptoms. So uh, for example, a dog's barking at the end of a leash at other dogs or pulling on leash or not listening when they're off leash and eating deer shit, like in your situation, <laughs> you're like, Hey lady, give me a friggin' solution today. I don't want to lose freedom. I don't want him to lose freedom because then I'm not having fun and I don't have the relationship I wanted with my dog. So what's the solution? And so that's why in examples like, you know, the dog's pulling and barking on the leash. Well, it has your dog had a trauma with other dogs. Yes. Okay. Well, it's probably coming from a place of fear. Now that we know why your dog is fearful and that it is fear, you know, then we can facilitate space. So if you're scared of a tarantula and you're walking down the street on a string and there's friggin' tarantulas everywhere and your owner keeps, you know, correcting you on the collar or shutting your mouth or yelling at you when you exhibit a fear reaction, which would be barking and lunging, are you going to feel any better about hanging out with tarantulas? No. And so we're suppressing symptoms rather than, you know, facilitating the space that's required. Okay. Can you look at a tarantula from 40 feet away? And if you can, I'm going to give you chicken breast. So you start to think tarantulas are super cool to be around and your, your body stops going into fight or flight when you see them. So the solution is definitely, especially if you're dealing with a fear issue, which you're, you're not, but um, with the goose poo and all that stuff, but with fear and barking, it's why um, understanding the history, facilitating space. And then what we want to do is called counter conditioning, which is teaching the dog that the tarantula causes good things every single time they see it. And out of respect of your fear, I'm not going to ask you to walk past your stress threshold and into the danger zone where you take matters into your own hand and show me how scared you are by barking and lunging. So, and that really instills trust between the two of you. Your dog starts realizing, holy shit, he finally gets it. He's not walking me around a bunch of tarantulas anymore. Thank God I can be a dog and sniff the ground instead of being mm. hypervigilant. And then with that trust, then there comes confidence. And then with confidence, there comes opportunity to get closer and closer to the tarantulas while still maintaining that safe um, headspace or um, a lack of a nervous system sort of reaction. I've certainly never used so many treats in my life to train. Like, <laughs> I asked you not long ago, like, hey, should I get a shock collar to for when I can't access him? Like just to train him to the beep that will hit him on the in the in the ears, you know, mm -hmm. just that like a zoom. So he knows like consequence coming. And you're like, uh, no, you should learn how to positively reinforce your animal. You don't need to use fear as a motivator. And I was like, Oh yeah. Thanks for the reminder of one, my integrity and two, that that is possible of like being able to recognize that like we did the counter conditioning when I was at the beach in Tofino for a while and Carl would, we'd have to wash him every time we came back from his dog walk. And I remember I was trying to wash him and the water was kind of cold and he was pulling away and I, I was holding his collar and he got kind of hurt by me holding the collar. Like he was pulling so hard that he, you could feel like the next day he was drinking or that night. And I could hear like a squeak in him every time he drank water. And I'm like, I am the worst person 
just because I was wanting to wash him. And he was super scared of the of the hose after that. And I remember you told me to give him something that he has never, like something that is so delicious that he sees the thing, so the hose, and then gets the thing so that it's not gets the, so I used peanut butter on a spoon. So gets the peanut butter, then sees the thing, then it's the wrong association. So it exactly. has to be scary thing brings out most delicious thing I've ever experienced in my life. Well, within a day, he was chowing down on peanut butter, letting me wash him as much as I wanted. He, the first time I brought peanut butter out, he was like, okay, like hose, super scary. I've seen that thing. And I just washed his feet. And the next time I did it, he was full on. He was like peanut butter party, licking the spoon while I was, <laughs> while I was hosing every part of him using soap. And I was like, this is amazing. Like I had no idea we get so it's so easy to think about correcting mm -hmm. uh, with pain or fear instead of, and I really wanted, as you mentioned, when I was asking you those questions, it's like, how do I still build more trust? Like, how do I make it like whatever I ask, he's like fully on board with most of the time because he trusts me mm -hmm. and he knows I don't lead him into pain or suffering or that everything's an adventure. You might not want to get in this car, but when you get in this car, we're going to a dog park. You're going to learn that the car is actually a vehicle to get you to your most fun place you've ever been. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, counter conditioning works. I mean, using treats works. We have, again, I think it's an ego human thing. When can I get rid of the food? Why the hell do you want to get rid of the food? I mean, I have a great job, but if you didn't love your job and someone was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to stop paying you and expect you to keep listening and doing your job. I mean, most of us would say, hell no, why would I? And, and why do we look at dogs any differently? They work for food. They love food. It makes them happy. It works for your training. If you do it right, you're not using it as a bribe. You're teaching them that if they make the right choice for the chance of food, then they're going to get the food. Yes, of course, we want to taper food off. But like, again, it, it comes a lot down to control. When can I get them to just listen to me without it being a bargain? Well, I thought that. I'm like, yeah. shit, I want them to come because I'm enough. I'm yeah. And, and who's that about? Is that about right. you? Yeah. It's totally about me. Totally. As opposed to like, I want them to come because on the end of that request, is a little piece of fish or a little cheddar cheese. Today I was at the dog park and, you know, there's probably like eight dogs there. Every time I called him, he came to me. No one else in the dog park had that level of relationship. Or He would break away from playing if he wasn't too engaged, but he would break away from playing and come to me. And I was like, well, you can't do that with deer poo, but you can do that with, <laughs> you know. But I was laughing because I'm like, wow, this is like the level of trust him and I have. Like, yeah. And I'm having the time of my life and you're still more important. And I'm like, if that doesn't make you feel fucking good, I don't know what will. Totally. And but that I mean that comes with time and you've put the work in and you've asked the questions and you've you really care about him and you I mean you don't you don't have him as like a bystander to your adventures. He's part of the adventures and and relationship building comes from time and and same with people. I mean, commitment to working through those really frustrating days and not expecting him to change overnight. Um, I mean, we could be talking with one of your coaching people right now. It's the same as with right. people. We just, we expect immediate results because it's a dog and it's just, I mean, same with people. It takes what, two to three weeks to develop new habits and dogs are definitely no exception to that rule. Yeah. Dogs are no exception to that, are they? No, it takes a long time to undo old habits that feel really good that have been reinforcing for them. And we are the ones that are responsible for facilitating and showing them what we do want them to do in these scenarios. So to answer one of your other questions, another problem, a common 
mistake people make with their dogs is we're so focused on all the shit they're doing that's an inconvenience to us, embarrassing, painful, um, annoying, barking, nipping, pulling, running away. We're so attached to all those things they do wrong. And we're so attentive to those things that inadvertently we're actually reinforcing them with our energy and our time. And if we all just spent like Mm. one minute a day, just being like, wow, you just laid down over there when I'm eating my dinner instead of actually being under the table. And if you notice that you recognize it, you pay attention to it, you reinforce it with praise get up, pet them. I don't know, hand them a piece of kibble. Like, Hey man, that was a really good choice. I didn't ask you to do that. And you made that choice and I'm going to acknowledge it. Mm. Yeah. He, whenever he does that, I'm like, cause you're, you've said that to me, like pay attention to when he starts to automate requests. Like he's just assuming this is what I, my owner wants from me and I'll get something for that probably, which I'm like, uh, hell yeah. You're already doing all the things we've been working on. It's like, you're reading my mind. This is great. Yeah. And sometimes they, I think a lot of the time they don't even do it for anything. They're just doing it because we've conditioned them to. And so how empowering for an animal, like I always imagine dogs are like these beings that are like in these spaces and they're pressing all these buttons and they're like, this button works. Okay. I got the steak off the counter. Jumping up works. Uh, this button works. If I drag my owner towards the goose poo, then I'll get a gobble of it. Or they're like, this button does not work. Uh, you know, trying to go out the door and it catching my foot on the way in because it wasn't actually opening for me, that did not work. And imagine being an animal pressing all these buttons, trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. And then you press a button and and you weren't doing it for any outcome. And then you got a good outcome. That's empowering. He's like, holy shit, that button I've never pressed before actually got me something. Cool. Yeah. It's empowering. Well, I, I remember we were teaching him to stand on a block right? To, and I've been able to use that since. He knows it. Sometimes he just pulls it out of the woodwork. He'll stand on something hoping for a treat. But in the teaching of that, I remember we were leading him to by accident, put his foot on the thing. And then we reward him for it. And eventually he figures out, oh, when my foot goes on this thing, I get a treat. And we keep saying the command and then passively, he doesn't even know why. Eventually, there, at first, what was interesting about Carl is he was trying to avoid the thing. Yeah. You know, which makes sense. He doesn't want to put his foot on a thing he doesn't know about. He's not certain about. Now he'll hop on anything just to get <laughs> food. He stands so proud. I'm like, on your mark. And he goes on to whatever I'm pointing at. But the other day, he just pulled it out of the woodwork and stood on something. He's like, how about now? Well, I pointed in a direction. I didn't say on your mark. And all of a sudden, he just stood on the thing, looked at me so proud. And I was like, no, but that's pretty cool that you're <laughs> that you're able to do that. And, it, you know, I think about how much... I feel bad if I damage our relationship and I want to repair and he never does anything to damage our relationship. And like, that's such an interesting thing to think about. It's like nothing he ever does is to hurt me. It's always actually to love me. Mm -hmm. And that man, that like makes me think about how much, uh, how we are so different that, that because humans are capable of it, we assume dogs are capable of it. Mm-hmm. And humans only hurt other humans when they're hurt, when that's their best strategy, when they haven't sat in that, you know, and even the things we do that hurt other people really come from the intention of love, which that's hard to obviously come to terms with because some things are pretty bad that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, I, I think there's qualifiers to that, but, you know, in general, that's true. And I would say that dogs are quite similar. And if you're dealing with an aggression issue where your dog is actually biting at you from a place of, you know, intent, I would argue that they're still only hurting you because they're hurt very similarly to people. So 
again, holding space for the why there and not, you know, looking at it like a pair of shoes you need to throw out and replace. It's like, okay, why are you biting me right now? And how can I repair the miscommunication or be more respectful of your boundaries or understand what you're trying to communicate from towards me before you use your mouth to communicate it, which is another misconception with dogs. A lot of people are constantly thinking like, how do I stop it from setting boundaries with me? <laughs> which again, <laughs> makes me laugh based on your right. work. Um, <laughs> we don't like when dogs do that. That's actually really funny to think about. Like how, cause you know, when you try to over cuddle Carl, he's like, mm-hmm, no, like I'm going to move over here. And you're like, what? Like you're yeah. supposed to be at my whim. Uh-huh. And when I want to cuddle, you cuddle a little buddy. But he's like, hot over here. I'm going to go lay over there. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Why did I get a dog? But it shows you how we, their boundary, we're like, I'm just going to mow down all over that. I'm going to grab him and force him to lay with me. Yeah. And that's painful for me to watch because there's so many body language cues that dogs are constantly giving. Um, I'm sure it's the same as you like at a restaurant observing people on a first date. You're like, oh God, the body language is so off and she has no idea or something like that. I imagine. Yeah. Dogs are the same is like, we don't want them to set those boundaries because we make it about us when they do like, you don't love me enough or, you know, you don't appreciate me enough. You know how expensive you are, you dick. Like we definitely yeah, do yeah. those things at times. Um, but it's like, they're using their phone talking to us and we're like, <laughs> why don't you pay attention? And they're like, I'm trying to show you that I don't, I'm not present. Yeah. And when we push that boundary, I mean, they lip lift, they growl, they, um, they snarl at us, they'll snap at us. And people are like, how do I make him stop doing those things? I'm like, you don't, holy shit. You thank him for those things. Thank you for growling. That's a pretty fucking clear boundary. I really appreciate you being so clear and so sure of what you do and don't want that you leave space for me to then back off. So the premise of like correcting boundaries and dogs is, is definitely a place where your relationship can get much stronger. If my dog Cedar, you know, looks at me a certain way, cause I know body language or avoids me a certain way. Like you're mentioning Carl does. I don't then go towards him and pursue the cuddle fest that he's definitely advocating to not have. I'm like, well, shit. Okay. I guess I'm by myself again over here. <laughs> and I, and I respect that. And I think, you know, the relationship grows if we can start to watch their body language and really read what they're trying to say to us. Well, yeah. And the thing you were saying earlier about we focus so much on the things they're not doing, and that's what we give attention to. That's what we're obsessed about. What's interesting in the relationship research is in the Gottman's research, when they study couples that succeed after six years versus end in divorce, they have over five positive interactions to every one negative interaction. And if you simply improve your math ratio and you start to have more positive interactions, you will have a more thriving relationship. And real relationship masters do like seven, eight, nine to one. Too high, you lose the sincerity of the action. Mm. But I think about what you were saying. of like, if every time I am interacting with my animal, it's criticism, it's contempt, it's correction. They're like, being around you is actually not fun. Like, I don't, you don't trust me. So why would I want to be around you? You don't treat me with love and respect. Why would I want to be around you? And you're always telling me I'm a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh yeah. Imagine if when I walk, cause whenever I walk by Carl and he's laying down, cause right now he's on leash in the house. Cause I can't handle white carpet poops <laughs> but in this other house that doesn't belong to me. When I walk by him and he's laying down, I'm like, Hey buddy good to see you. You know, I'm like, cuddle him, say hi to him. And his little tail goes on the, you know, it's the best (laughs) sign in the world. If his tail wasn't wagging, then I'd be like, 
he wants to chill for a bit. I get it. Yeah, but look at you paying attention to his body language. It's so great because, I mean, they, they are clear. We just don't know how to read their language. So what are some body language cues that are really, I mean, I've been with you when we've gone to like a dog park with Carl and with Cedar and seeing them interact or when Cedar and him interact to be able to be like, and I know you'll be like, oh, that's this. It's like so funny to hear you narrate the dog experience because you make it make sense. It's like those movies where you see dogs have their own voice. Yeah, It's like that where you're like, Oh, it, I feel like a whole another world is being translated to me when I'm around you in those situations. Well, that's one of the most favorite things that my clients and, and people I'm coaching say is like, can we just go to the park so you can teach me about my dog's personality here? Because, man, I can't even go to dog parks, Mark, because I, I'm watching so many conversations that are conflict filled that like between the dogs that I'm like so overwhelmed with how to translate that. So it's a lot of energy to be aware of, first of all, which is highly entertaining, but also tough at sometimes. But body language wise, um, dogs are pretty clear with both each other and people, and they'll use the same signals to communicate to both people and dogs um, to slow down or to ease off or to come closer or um, little winks that are like, what I'm about to do is going to come across as really intense, but I want you to know I'm playing. So those are the, the best ones to see. So examples of play signals, invitations for connection and communication and contact are elbows down and butt up. So it's called a play bow. You might find when dogs are interacting, they're staring at each other. They might be in like a little bit of a standoff. And then one of them after a few seconds pops down with the elbows down and the butt up. And that's like, bring it on, buddy. I'm ready to party. So that's a fun one to see. Um, some dogs do that. Some dogs don't. Another one is what we call self-handicapping, which would be in play with both you or other dogs where they put themselves at a disadvantage if they're bigger than another animal. Um, so if Carl was playing with a friend that's smaller, he might put himself on his back to wrestle or lie down to wrestle to basically be doing a peace offering with the smaller or less advantaged animal to say like, I want to play with you right now, but I'm going to do it on your level so that it feels respectful and mm. fair. So that's, that's a nice cool. one. Yeah. It's a really nice one to see in terms of warning signals, things people need to watch for closing their mouth and staring at you and showing you the whites of their eye is called a whale eye. Um, that's a very subtle sub threshold warning. That basically means if you keep doing what you're doing, I might take it to the next level and growl at you. So mm -hmm. closing their mouth, yes, direct eye contact, and then showing you the whites of their eyes. So a little bit of a head turn happens. And then I'll just speak to one misconception. A lot of people think if their dog's tails are wagging, that they're happy. A wagging dog's tail is actually often associated with arousal, which can lead very quickly to aggression. So if a dog is barking in their entire body language, it's stiff and tall, um, but their tail is wagging, or they're standing sniffing another dog, but their tail is wagging, and everything about it's a bit stiff and robotic. That's uh, not a friendly tail wag, but if the rest of the body is loosey goosey and that tail is whipping back and forth um, with a lot of movement and fluidity, then that's a happy tail wag. That's interesting. I never would have known that. You know, mm -hmm. I see when I think about the uh, self handicapping that term. I remember when Carl was a puppy, we would go to the dog park and there was a much smaller dog he would sometimes play with, but he would sort of mow the dog down. You know, like force himself. He was didn't really recognize that he needed to pull back a bit. And so I would do, as you said, I'd take him back, let the other dog come to him. Then I know it's consensual and it's like, it's okay. And also he would 
he learned over time to start to lay down and to start to play down for the other dog. And so now I see him do that and I'm like, way to go, buddy. Like you're learning. And when he gets aggressive with a dog at a dog park, who's he did it for the first time, which I'm like, good job. Because he was protecting himself. The dog was yeah. too aggressive with him. And he growled back, which I'd never seen him do, which means he's maturing a little bit. He growled back and he barked at the dog. And I grabbed him and pulled him away and pushed the other dog away. Yeah, just because he was at my legs. And so I'm like, you're safe. I got you. Then they re-engaged in play and the other dog wasn't as aggressive. So it was like really interesting to see. He, I think most dogs often come to your legs, right? If they feel unsafe, they come to you or they want you to like stand between you and the thing. Totally. First of all, great job, Mark, recognizing that Carl set a boundary. You would. That's I've had great. good training. I've had good training from you. <laughs> no, that makes me proud. That's good. Yeah. Oftentimes they'll come to our legs for safety to communicate. I'm not comfortable. And then if the dog comes into their safe bubble at our legs, that's when they hit their threshold. They're like, I'm backed up against a, a wall. Basically I'm communicating by moving away from you that I don't want this interaction. And if the dog pursues them while they're sort of cornered at that point, that, that's when they usually will communicate more with their teeth or, or louder noises. So good for him. He is maturing. I mean, and you start to see more and more of those behaviors when they're around a year and a half to two, those will start to happen more often because his tolerance of shitty other dog behavior will start to decrease and he'll, he'll start doing to other dogs, what he was doing, um, what he was getting from other dogs when he was the pushy one. That's good. Cause it's nice to see him stand up for himself. Like he has his cousin is a Aussie doodle and he kind of mows him down a little bit and chases him. And I'm like, just waiting for the moment. I'm like, <laughs> dude, you need to stand up for yourself. You know, I'm like, I'll protect him. But I'm also like, yeah, I don't know how you're tolerating this. Like you need to, you need to give him some back. Cause as soon as you give it back, the other dog is quite submissive. And so when that dog knows he has space to do whatever he wants, he does whatever he wants. But as soon as a dog is assertive back, he's super respectful. Interesting. So it's really, yeah. It's really interesting to watch him push Carl's boundaries because Carl still has that puppy energy. Like, I don't want to get in a fight. I don't want to, you could see him do that at the dog park too, where his tail's down and he's still like assessing. Yeah. yeah which he should be. I'm like, I think that some of the relationships between dogs are interesting to witness as well, because if two dogs know each other really well, they'll have less boundaries in place. So if, if a different dog was doing that to Carl, his, he'd probably have faster, you know, boundaries set, but when known dogs play together, their play styles can be totally different just based on an understanding that this is going to be really, really intense, but I know there's never any ill intent and that trust is there between them even. So rougher play will happen and more inappropriate play will happen between those type of relationships, which is great to see too. Yeah. That's interesting that there's a rapport between them that you're able to be like, Oh, I, tr I trust that you both know where the line, and if you cross it, there'll be a growl, there'll be a thing, which whenever I, Carl, when I get the ball from him and he like bites and hits my hand, and I'm like, ow, he's instantly like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Because you're so clear. Yeah. And he's, it's interesting too, because just the emotion of my ow, because it's real. He's, you know, <laughs> ran by me to grab a Frisbee and like got my hand with the Frisbee. And I'm like, ow. And he's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And, you know, it's being able to, he recognizes the tone. He recognizes the hurt. He recognizes, because of course his intent isn't to take my hand with the Frisbee. It's to just get the Frisbee. And he's super excited. And I see that it's, Sometimes he gets so excited about something that he forgets about his training. And I'm like, that makes sense. 
I and again, it. you're circling back to his why, which is exactly where you need to start. And that's, that's again, why he's so sensitive to your tone is you're consistent in your remembering to check in on why he's done something. A lot of people in that moment would get activated and smack their dog for doing that. But it's like, man, he was just going for the ball. It was an accident. Your reaction with a good, if you have a good relationship with your dog will resonate, especially if you're using different tones, which is a little bit, you know, a lot of people think in positive reinforcement dog training, there's no um, room for punishment and there really is room for punishment. It's just, it's ethical and it's fair. And again, it's consistent. So punishment would be, I mean, I use tone as punishment. Same. Um, yeah, I think it's important for them to hear that shift because if you're consistent with that shift, they realize they're getting closer and closer to hitting your boundary. And if you think about it from a dog's world, our voices are literally talking all day long. How the hell are they supposed to differentiate what is for them? You know, the words we say, what words are for them and relevant to them versus what words am I saying on the phone to somebody? So if you're not, you know, hyper aware of your tone and either creating a happy tone or a more negative tone, if you're trying to interrupt negative behavior, then man, it's hard for them to decipher if you're talking to them or not. So tone's pretty key for punishment. And then the other thing that I always try to remind people is, and you've already alluded to this, but if they don't listen to a recall, for example, coming back when called, there has to be a negative punishment for that. It's like, yeah. you know, you didn't listen. Great. Okay. I'm going to get you. I'm going to catch you or wait for you to come to me. And then I'm not going to be mean, but I'm going to put you on leash and losing the freedom of the deer poo land is <laughs> punishment enough for him to realize like, shit, I should listen next time. Cause if I don't, I actually, I get way less deer poo. If I don't listen than I would, if I, if I did listen in the first place. When I think about that is a struggle that I had, which was, I'm mad that you're not coming to me, but why would you come to me if I'm mad? Mm -hmm. Like, like I'm negatively reinforcing when you actually get here. And so I'm like, okay, how do I hold a space of compassion? Because at the first four or five times, there was no space. It was like, <laughs> I'm so mad at you right now because I'm worried you're going to get hurt. I'm worried you're going to. And so when you don't listen, it could be your life one day. And so I recognize the serious importance of recall. That's why recall to me is the most important thing, especially because I have... I give him so much freedom. Exactly. He's always off leash when we are in off leash zones. Dog, please don't worry about it. But I'm like, he's always off leash when we're hiking, if it's safe. He's always off leash when, whenever we're anywhere that's possible, because I know that if he will come back to me, if there's a danger, but when it happens that he doesn't, I get anxious about it. Cause I'm like, well, if this, if he's chasing a freaking deer and there's a car coming, mm -hmm. then he's not thinking about the car. He's thinking about He's never going to catch a deer, so I don't even know why. <laughs> but it, it's in that balance of like, when you come back to me, I'm upset, but you're still going to want to come to me. Mm -hmm. And that is hard. Oof, that's personal mm -hmm. growth. I got to tell you, that's... I totally agree. Because you got to check yourself and your agenda. That take, again, that's time. Like he has to learn thousands of times that it's been in his best interest to listen to you because you've been a safe place and a, and a positive place for him to be in order to choose you in those moments. And I mean, Frig, we're allowed to get mad. They are frustrating. Like they are frustrating sometimes. And it, and we do set them up for success and they still fail. And we can really do everything training wise, right. And they still aren't, you know, they're not robots. I'm a dog trainer and I own Huskies, which is a testament to my will. And I um, have a, yeah, they are stubborn oh. yeah i mean their instincts are greater than most breeds and so their why is always them like me first 
and I appreciate that about them. There's a lesson to be learned in that for sure. Um, but I, I have dogs that 100% will never, ever, ever recall off of deer or a dead salmon. Like, but I know that. So I'm not going to get pissed off when it happens. I'm like, Hey, I'm letting you off leash. It's safe. I have no attachment to my control at all. Mm. Mm, I don't like that line, but I like it. You know, it's one of, <laughs> one of those truths where you're like, oh yeah, fuck that. Yeah. Yeah. And I get like, he's never going to catch one, but they run up cliffs to get away from him. And then he comes back to me. So, I mean, it does come back Yeah, when he can't get them. And then and you got to reinforce it. that and you got to know, yeah. Okay. Well, good job, buddy. That was a great instinct of yours to chase that thing. Now you might go on leash because we're nearing a road. Like, yeah, you always got to weigh out the options. I like to give freedom where it's safe to knowing damn well that I might not get the control that I want or, you know, the response that I want. But if it's safe, the risk of them having a party and me getting to witness it is worth it to me. Right. And I think about one thing that I've heard you say, I believe, which if I hope I'm getting it right, which is if your dog runs away from you, but it's not trained to come back. That's on you. If your dog does, you know, like does anything other than if it's not trained to do the thing that you expect them to do when you give them freedom, then you can't blame them. Thank you. Yes. You I remember right. you saying that to me and I was like, oh, again, one of those truths where you're like, yeah, yeah. now I got to do some work. <laughs> right. Which I think about the human aspect of that, of like, if we've never navigated conflict successfully, how are we going to have healthy conversation? If we've, if we're still existing in old hurt, if we still don't have the trust, if we, you know, it's all the same stuff. It's like, Mm -hmm. is there safety to be myself? Is there a reason I should trust you? Is there a reason I should listen to you? Um, Not that we're taking, you know, commands from our partner, but you know what I mean? Like in terms of requests, in terms of expectations, you know, your dog's not going to meet expectations. It has no idea you have in your secret human brain. A hundred percent. And the other thing that I think is such a similarity between our human and our dog relationships is, I mean, aside from obviously, like you mentioned, expectations are really off. Um, that what I mentioned before, that focus on the negative. Like I could, I could easily be annoyed about 15 things my partner does in a week when I have a partner. And, and (laughs) instead of focusing on those things, um, I think it's important to focus on all the things they did do right. And man, does the relationship shift. And and when your dog starts to feel that they're going to want to cuddle with you longer and you're going to see that they start to want to jump on your bed and hang out with you if you're going to permit for it. And there'll be less conflict and they'll look at you and then they'll look back at the deer and they'll be like, you know what, man, I like you today. Uh, Yeah, I look forward to that. (laughs) We haven't got there yet. We haven't got there yet. Give it two years. Yeah, give it a couple, a little more deer interaction. Yeah. Well, this is, so for people listening, what are sort of, what would be your top, you can choose however many number, because whenever someone says three, you might be like, well, I have five, or (laughs) I only have two. So what are your top tips for people listening in order to, either heal or repair or create a trusting, loving relationship with their dog where they are being able to, you know, provide the kind of training that, and, and provide, sorry, provide the kind of relationship that they desire with their animal. Mm-hmm. I love that question. I think uh, number one, don't be cheap with what you give. Don't be cheap with freedom. Just make sure it's safe. Don't be cheap with food. Just make sure they're not morbidly obese. Uh, yeah. 
you know, don't be cheap with how frequently you notice them getting it right. Don't be cheap with your time. Don't be cheap with your stillness. Let them sniff, let them explore. Don't be cheap with your contact. So if they want to snuggle you on the couch, it's not going to impact your relationship in any way other than positive. So yeah, don't be cheap. We are a resource to them. And if you want your relationship to be strong, you've got to be willing to give. Um, And the other thing is, you know, just be silly, have fun. We're so stuck on this frigging control component with our dogs. We want them to fit into the criteria that we've predetermined for them. The dog dream. This is the life I want with my dog. This is the things I want to do with my dog. Well, guess what? You get what you get. You can't change (laughs) half of it. Uh, There's lessons in all of the things we have to change our expectations on with dogs. And I think honoring who they are and having fun with it versus trying to turn them into the shape you wanted them to be is sort of the, the, the key to um, having a healthy and fun relationship with them. Yeah. Remembering joy, remembering adventure, remembering, you know, I often play with Carl, but I haven't had a toy with us because he eats them always. He does surgery on them and removes the <laughs> and then he's done with them. And, but I haven't had one in a while and he always brings that thing to me always to play to, or he just plays with it on his own. He chews it on his own. He makes squeak. You hear the squeak in the distance and you're like, Oh, there he goes. You know, and it's, it's to remember that I, I, I have to, and I think we have to do the same with our human relationships is, you know, not forgetting to have adventure and joy. And I think dogs are such a beautiful example of unconditional love. Mm-hmm. there's such a beautiful example of um, being present. And, you know, as you've been emphasizing, it's like you get what you put in and it really is a skill set of being able to put ourselves in a per- another species or another animal, another whatever heartbeats eyes and say, how do you see the world and why might you be showing up in this way in this moment? If I just take a moment to step out of my own egocentric human-centric view, I might for a second have a bridge of possibility to say like, oh, let me meet you there. Exactly. Beautifully put. Yeah. And and that's, I mean, you can be a dog trainer or you can be sort of somebody that wants to facilitate exactly that understanding. And, and that's truly where my passion lies is helping people just understand and connect with their pets and just yeah. Be silly. Lie on the floor with them. Like just have fun. You're, you're like, you're important to them. And if you want them to listen to you, then you definitely have to put that time in and adjust what your expectations are. So you are incredible at what you do. I am so appreciative of you as a human being, but also in facilitating my relationship with, I'd say any animal now, because it transcends to everything. I would love for people to find out where they can find more of you. Because of course, there's only one of you and only so much time you have. So I know you don't really take on new clients anymore, but you do, and I check them out and use them because I'm like, oh, instead of texting you and being like, hey, I need to book a session to do this. It's like, you already have videos about all this stuff. So where do we find more of you? And how do we, yeah, how do we find you? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I have two businesses. They can find me at um, canineconnectiontraining.ca or at canineconnectiontraining on Instagram. There's a lot of free training tips on there. Um, Although I'm full for private clients, I do a lot of uh, Zoom classes so people can learn how to train their dogs from a distance. And we have people from all over the world joining us for those. So those are super fun. Uh, And then uh, I'm a co-owner of a business called Sniff Dog, 
Um, and that is your all things dog opportunity to learn um, sort of everything you need to know with courses and free YouTube videos and lots of little tidbits of information on Instagram. So you can find us there at sniffdog.dog. That's so awesome. Sniffdog.dog and canineconnection.ca. Yes. Yeah. Canineconnectiontraining.ca. Perfect. So canineconnectiontraining.ca. We'll make sure all these links are in the show notes. Anika, thank you so much for your time, for your gift, for you stepping into your purpose. And it's so obvious that it is because you're very good at it and you're obviously very passionate about it. So thank you. Thank you. And say hi to Carl for me. Will do. 